You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. If you ever feel pressure to create a brand new sequence with a smashing playlist every single class, this conversation with Sarah Powers will soothe and inspire you. Sarah is the co-founder of the Insight Yoga Institute, as well as the author of the books Insight Yoga and Lit From Within. Sarah began teaching yoga in the mid-1980s, and today her yoga style blends both a yin sequence with long-held floor poses with an alignment-based slow flow or yang movement practice. Sarah has completed all levels of the internal family systems therapy training and has been a student of spiritual psychology for over 35 years. In today's episode, she talks about the early days of yin yoga, when very few people were interested in a slow, quiet practice, and also the different teachers and experiences that layered together to form her current approach. I think you will love the insights that Sarah shares today. So let's jump right into this conversation and I will see you on the other side. Sarah, I'd love to start by hearing a bit about your early journey with yoga when you first started practicing and and when you first started teaching and why you decided to teach. I started practicing because I loved being in my body in various ways. So I was already doing gymnastics when I was young and dance, and I was doing probably soft and strong aerobics and running and things. So I was in my early and mid twenties when yoga came into my awareness as a possibility through a book that one of my brothers handed me and there were pictures and descriptions and something you could do at home so trying that out for a number of weeks I was in Los Angeles it was the mid-80s and in West Hollywood there was a center I could go to and learn all about breathing and I didn't hesitate. I thought, well, it seems so obvious, but there must be a lot to it if this is a five-day course for three hours a night all about breathing. (laughs) So I was completely transformed at the end of that, walking in with one person, walking out another. Just the light body had never been introduced to me before somebody from this yogic perspective, because in the book, I hadn't really read it in depth. I I was studying psychology at this time and really interested in dream work and looking at the subtle realms of the psyche. But I hadn't really recognized that the body had its own invisible wisdom in it as well. And uh, interestingly, a couple of months later in my graduate course, they required that we find a physical discipline to study that had spiritual roots for one of the particular quadrants. And I thought, oh, oh, okay. 
maybe this would apply. And other people were doing Tai Chi. I had a mentor who was a Sufi, so she was introducing me to different perspectives that way. And since I had just a little taste of yoga, I thought, okay, I'll do this. And we had to do it for four months every day and write a journal. And so it really made me be disciplined and exploratory. And at the end of it, I thought, wow, do I really want to become a psychologist or do I want to share with other people how they could transform with the body as the, the first area of connection and do something that would be psychosomatic, psychologically embodied. And so I spent some time questioning that and then really thought, well, having gone to, at that point, a few yoga classes and then a teacher training, I saw this is a room that's open with walls and a floor and you bring to it what is a value for integration. And so rather than be a therapist, which was my trajectory at the time, in a room, one-on-one, -on -one, I thought I could bring the therapeutic principles I've been learning into this room with groups of people and continue the one-on-one, -on -one, which I did. And that just started to feel like a, a way of giving back what I felt I was learning because I had structural imbalances and old disease in my colon and things that I hadn't really paid attention to in my young adult life until I started to really have a physical practice and realize, hey, wow, there's some things here that are going to become even more uh, exacerbated if I don't start paying attention now. I had allergies. I hadn't really looked into what I ate as affecting my health or my rhythms of evacuating my bowels. All of it was so new. And so I started to change and, and quickly then, because I lived near one of the few yoga centers at the time, Yoga Works in Santa Monica, I started to have then a venue to very quickly share what I was learning. So it was more like a, being a student teacher. And because yoga was really expanding at that time and there weren't a lot of teachers, a lot of people came. So I was constantly studying as a student and then giving back a couple of hours a week as well. And it was a very rich time, yeah. Do you remember the name of the book that your brother gave you? It was the Black Shivananda book. I, I think it's just a Shivananda yoga book. That's how basic the cover is with some poses. <laughs> and then you practiced from that for four months on your own at home. Is that the picture? I practiced with that for a few weeks. And then when I was re... And I, I kept it up, but then it fell away. And then when I was required through studying my psychological graduate program to find a physical discipline, then I found some teachers. And one of them was in Santa Monica and one of them was in Santa Barbara. I was in Southern California and so I, and Hollywood. And so I started to see how live teaching was a really quickening of transformation, that, that the book I had missed so much psychological, philosophical, and energetic information. I was just looking at the pictures and copying them <laughs> because I could. I had enough physicality to copy them, but I really could have and eventually did quite injure myself by not understanding the internal principles.
Yeah. And then your teacher training, did you do that at yoga works or somewhere else? No, yoga works didn't have teacher training yet. This was white Lotus with Gonga okay. white and Tracy in something like 87. Yeah. They had a three week training residential that you go to. And I was just filling my course for, for my program of study. But when I left there, I thought, well, I'll share this with some first with my partner and then with some friends and everybody was so enthusiastic. I thought, okay, this, this might also be an avenue for me. So that was a long time ago. Tell me what your practice was like then and how it's evolved over the last decades and what it's like now. It was a long time ago, although it doesn't always feel that way because what I love about yoga is the tuning in to the place in which we're constantly renewed and time doesn't operate in the same linear fashion. We think of the truth of the energy body doesn't age, the physical body does. And so this, this thread back to that beginning feels so clear and crisp that at that time I was doing a lot of Ashtanga, I was studying with Chuck Miller every morning, three days a week, and then doing my own practice three days a week to just listen to what my body needed. And so my first teaching was an Ashtanga inspired flow series, a couple of days a week. And my practice was quite committed on the weekends. I was going to workshops from anybody who was visiting very much alignment-based Iyengar training. And then I did an Iyengar teacher training and yoga therapy training. I was obsessed. And so for seven years, that's all I did all week long. I practiced and taught and weekends. I was a student and broke down, you know, Chaturanga for 20 hours all weekend until I could you know, lift my hands to wash my hair. <laughs> so I found that that immersion really worked well for me. And I was not studying with just one person or one style. And so I also realized that I had a kind of integrator personality. I'd liked to see how different people came to the subject from different angles and where they all would agree and where, where they veered. And without an allegiance to anyone, but really respecting each, I felt like I had a new community of adults that, you know, community centers or religious or spiritual uh, commitments is, is really how people find that, that real sense of camaraderie. And so I was very close with Mati and Chuck and all the other teachers we had practice in the mornings, everybody was going to Chuck's class. And then in the weekends, we were also having meals together. So it was quite immersive. And after seven years, I had a child. I think that's about right. And then we moved away. And we moved to Santa Fe. And so I just practiced on my own with all I had learned. And I should say at that time, Paul Grilly came in to teach in that uh, same studio at that time. And I loved how he would share long-held poses. He wasn't speaking a lot yet. And the word yin yoga hadn't even, even been coined yet. And so I was familiar with the style without understanding its repercussions or, or how I would ever share it. So when I moved away, it fell away, that style. And I stayed with my stronger practice, 
with my alignment-based exploration in my own body. And years later, I moved to Southern California in Santa Barbara and then up to the Bay Area. And maybe 10 years later, I went to visit Paul at a workshop he was giving in Berkeley. I hadn't seen him for a very long time. And he, he had now come to a, a verbalization and a philosophical understanding of how to weave Taoism in with yoga. And I was fascinated because I was already meditating and studying Buddhism by that time. And I thought, what a nice bridge. I feel like these poses we're holding is mini meditation time. And people who have a hard time sitting for half an hour could stay for three or five minutes and get some of the similar qualities of connecting to different realms of stillness and, of course, reactivity in the stillness and work with that. And probably if I hadn't been a meditator, I might not have gravitated so strongly to study more at that time. So I just went to maybe six or seven teacher trainings of Paul's because that's how I learn well is just saturation. It's never just once. I have to hear it again and again and again until I feel like I'm off book and I can practice it on my own. And then I realized not very many people were interested in it. So I was teaching vinyasa and Buddhism, mindfulness at the time. So I asked Paul, how about if we lead a teacher training together and you do yin and Taoist principles, I'll do yang and Buddhist. And it went really well. We loved it. We did that for about six years. And then we both just got busy and people became more interested in this cross-pollination. And so I gradually got more comfortable teaching more about yin and Taoism. And I learned from a Taoist teacher in Berkeley for a number of years. I healed some of my own inner patterns. And so I started to think, well, now I've got to change what I call this. It's not just vinyasa. So I started using that more Chinese yogic terminology, yin and yang in mindfulness. And then eventually, after about 10 years of that, brought out a book and the agreed that the video I had made with Pranamaya, who had suggested I call it Insight Yoga, the blend of Buddhism and yoga, was a great title. So then, so then that's how that evolved. And I, I would say this whole time, I was simply teaching what I was practicing. They aren't two separate things, although the depth of what I practice, of course, I, I wouldn't just offer to beginners. We, Ty and I, my husband, we were together five years, even before I started studying yoga. We've been together 40 years. So we have been leading retreats now for a really long time. And so slowly they started adding these other elements to them. And my practice now, like today, I, this morning, I, I start with, having a space dedicated just to practice first thing in the morning. And I check in with how I am in a simple yin posture. I often will read something of inspiration by uh, some ancient practitioner, do some pranayam, then I'll meditate. And then today I did a long sequence of long held floor poses, which we call yin yoga at this point. And then some surya namaskar something I do every Monday. It's like I have, you know, Tuesdays I do Ashtanga. <laughs> I have these, these ways that I check in to see, is this appropriate for today? And if it's yes, then I have rhythms that I go through. 
Some days it's let's do whatever feels good. But like Tuesday and Friday is Shtanga day. And so it's like that. It's fun. It's creative. My meditation practice is unquestionably delightful now where, of course, in the early years, it took some time to feel that way. Needing lots of inspiration and education about how to train this wild heart and mind. And then lots of therapy to bring more compassion to my history of why I came to have the reactive patterns I did. And then instead of becoming a therapist, I, I have studied therapeutic models and work one-on-one with people more as a mentor, therapeutic mentor. And in the last, I don't know, eight years now, internal family systems with transpersonal psychology has been my blend. So I bring that into the yin poses as an inquiry time in the yoga room because I do that in my own practice. So it's constantly evolving and I can't imagine life being as joyous without it. I love what you said about the patterns and rhythms. That makes so much sense to me because if you're trying to reinvent the wheel every morning, I mean, I don't know about you. You may be one of those people who kind of like wakes up with (laughs) bright eyed and bushy tailed. But for me, I don't have a lot of brain cells in the morning. And so having a rhythm, having a routine of a sense of like, okay, this is the basic structure. And then if I feel something different, I'm allowed, but here's the backup. Here's the backup plan. I really like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like Sunday, I don't do any asana. So Monday I do, okay, I'm going to just hold and do really simple. So it always feels refreshing on Monday to not have any expectations, but to know I can start with something I'm familiar with and and in my Surya Namaskars, the splits. And so I keep that in my connective tissues as, as a capacity. So at least once a week, I'm always having that in my sequence. It just feels now, and this is my 60th year. So my body feels very juiced from having started practice back in my 20s, even though I know it's beneficial, whatever age you start it, I do have the blessing of, of many decades that this body has had you know, regular routines, as you say. So I heard you talking a bit about Buddhism and Taoism, and that's definitely infused through the book that Caitlin from Shambhala sent me, Lit, Lit From Within. Seems from your book, like that's really the core of your spiritual practice. And I'm curious about, because you did start with a more Hindu or Vedanta-based yoga, how much of each influences you now? Are you really primarily focused on the more East Asian traditions, or do you consider it to be a blend between East Asian and South Asian philosophically? I certainly was exposed to, like you and most of your listeners, to the yogic philosophies in the trainings that I did as a yoga teacher and found them extremely inspiring and gravitated towards Advaita Vedanta as a path of self-inquiry. I'm a vichara, who am I? And that went along very much with my psychological training. Who am I on a personal level? And who am I on my historical level and the, the intergenerational trauma that I'm carrying? And who am I on a transpersonal level? So I really loved 
the opportunity for curiosity, for wondering and for figuring out much more than some of the, the, the translations of, let's say, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. I appreciated the aphorisms. Somehow they just, they, they didn't hit my heart space in the way that inquiry and discovery on my own with Advaita Vedanta did. So when I went to India, that, those are the teachers I went to. I went to Ramana Maharshi's ashram and I went to Ramesh and I had read everything I could on, on those subjects. And in moving to the Bay Area of San Francisco where all of the, the spiritual and religious traditions have centers, <laughs> <laughs> there's a wealth of opportunity to study anything that one is interested in. My mother had actually been studying Buddhism for a few years. And I saw the change in her in, because she had had a very kind of quick, reactive, judgmental side to her personality. And in working with her craving and aversion, that is kind of a, a common theme in any Buddhism 101 course, I was really inspired to see that she was able to be with her frustration and her reaction towards others in a quickened way. And I thought, oh, I could use some of that too. Not just knowing who I am on a grand scheme or uh, with my therapist, but what about my ordinary moments? And so I went to the nearest Buddhist center once a week. Since I had a young child, I could go in the evening and then the rest of the week, I would tell myself I would meditate, but I, 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 I didn't most often. So it was once a week, and that felt like a good start for about a year. And then I thought, well, now I'm really ready to test it. Let me go on a weekend retreat. And so silence from Friday to Sunday sounded daunting, but and it was led by Jack Cornfield, who was a psychologist and a Buddhist teacher. And I learned so much in such a short amount of time about myself and came back with so much more love in my heart and ability to parent in a way I thought would be safer for my daughter and my family, that I thought, oh, I, I'm going to, I'm going to do this the rest of my life. And it is in the Buddhist paradigm that people put themselves in sequestered areas, either by themselves or with a teacher, for deepening of their practice, much more than I found in, in other spiritual traditions. So it was, you could say it was, you know, the karma of being in a setting where Buddhist teachers influenced me, and then where that particular setup felt like the, the most um, skillful way for me to grow. And I just started going on retreats in the Bay Area and then worldwide. And, and after I'd been on more retreats than I could count, I thought, oh, I might be able to share this with my yoga students. And because there's local teachers, I can keep growing. And when I learned there were over 100,000 teachings on mindfulness, and I felt like, wow, I have a captive audience. People are holding poses while they you know, tug on their tissues and affect their meridians. Maybe they would like to learn some internal practices. Because at first I was reading them things like the Bhagavad Gita to keep people in the room who were used to just doing vinyasa. So I was my philosophical offerings were a slow gradual reading of other texts and then reading of teachers comments on the text and then sharing my own comments and then not needing the texts and just bringing in the teachings from what i had learned on my retreat time and that evolution i'm talking about over you know 10 years 
And so today I would say that I am highly Buddhist uh, inspired, but I feel like any ism is itself something you want to see where you're creating an identity out of. And so wherever there's a sense of dogmatism, I'm, I'm constantly on alert for that rigidity in myself. And so I, I so appreciate the languaging and have many teachers I highly restrict, respect in both the Theravada and the Zen and, and the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. So because that's what they practiced, that's what I as a student tended to collect. It's so helpful to hear the journey and how these different things layered and came together for you. Because when I talk to yoga teachers today, we're so much more exposed to so many more voices, right? On social media, even podcasts and things like that, that a lot of new yoga teachers, I get the sense that they feel a lot of pressure to like have created their own style in like, you know, the first couple years of teaching. Right. Mm -hmm. And I've been teaching for uh, almost 20 years. And I remember when I first started teaching that there was this expectation of building into a career, like not even that we even talked about a career as a yoga teacher. That wasn't even really something we talked about, but mm -hmm. building into your identity as a teacher, that it would take time and that it's really about being a student. So I loved how you talked in the beginning about being a student teacher. And I think it's useful to hear when someone who's been around a really long time and has written books, that this didn't just sort of arise out of thin air, <laughs> that there were so many layers and there was so much time and there was so much dedication put into building this relationship that you now have with your practice. So thank you very much for sharing that. It's, it's really helpful. I'm also curious over this long span of time, you mentioned in the beginning when you first were practicing and even teaching yin, not that many people were interested. <laughs> and so you've seen it grow. You've seen it almost explode from this obscure style to one of the most mm -hmm. popular styles in the world now. <laughs> and I, on the one hand, I want to say like, I really think it says a lot about Paul that he hasn't tried to control or monetize that growth. Really? I mean, he has, mm -hmm. he's really like given it up as a gift. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, that lack of systemization has led to some very different things being described as yin. Mm, it's true. And I'm really curious from your sense of having been there in the beginning and watching this evolution, what are some of the most common misunderstandings that you see where people may have really wonderful intentions about offering yin or practicing yin, but they don't quite get it? What are some of the things that you're seeing? Because this is an opportunity right now to talk to thousands of yoga teachers and plant some seeds of mm -hmm. what this practice is really about. A, a Paul's workshop had it at that time, like 12 people in it. And I thought, oh my goodness, he was looking at what else could he do with his life? He wasn't going to keep teaching yoga if there wasn't an interest. And so I did spend about eight or 10 years convincing people this was worth doing while still teaching vinyasa. 
So I was still practicing vinyasa as I still do today, whereas he wasn't. And so I felt like I had an audience that I could influence in bringing on a practice that could help balance what they already love. You don't have to give up what you love, but what might you be leaving out? And so my first group were Ashtangis who were willing on their one day off a week and during their moon cycle to do something other than their series. And since I spoke their language and loved their practice, that was a really nice fit. And I think people who all, also I was skilled as a restorative teacher. And so I used a lot of props and worked with people who needed healing. And yet there was something about the yin practice with less props that was challenging in a new way, challenging for the mind to be able to observe what was going on in terms of the, the expectations of relaxing, trying to get somewhere else and coming into where you actually were and how that itself is its own training that needed some psychological guidance that I really felt would be a, a wonderful fit for the psychologist in me. And I think that I wouldn't have been an interested teacher of this style of mindful yoga asana if I didn't have a level of curiosity myself of what the difference is between being generative and creating more of something versus being uh, surrendered and learning more from something. So I'm very much interested in that conversation between moving out and creativity and moving in and, and developing observation. And there is a yin feature to a yang practice that breeds much more beauty in it, where even though you're moving your body in different postures, you can stabilize where you focus from the inside in a power center in your abdomen called the hara. So what's the yin in the yang or what's the stability in the fluidity? Just as when you take some yin shapes, because a pose is not yin or yang, but how you practice it determines which tissues will get the most influence and then which meridians get the most juicing and how that affects your overall health and your hormones. So there is so many layers to learning in it. But the yang piece of when you hold poses, it's like a needless acupuncture session. If you understand where your target area of influence is, and then if your mind is stressed or attempting to strive for a certain result, that inhibits the chi flow. And if you're not taught about that, you, you're not getting the full benefit that you could. So I think what some yin teachers do is think, well, I don't need to know as much about the body because these poses are taught in a passive way with less props. And so I can just jump in. I can just, a yoga studio could just ask a regular teacher of other styles, hey, we need a yin class and I choose you. And it's a person who may not have any background in their own practice of it or much skill. And so then they can injure people because they don't understand how important it is to learn about appropriate edges. 
so that we can have a lifelong practice. So yes, many people do get injured and, and Paul is extremely gracious in allowing people to teach it from their own sense of integrity with it or lack thereof <laughs> and not you know, become an empire. And I love that about him. And it's why I wanted the yoga community to really benefit from what he had to offer. And, and as it started to grow and change, and then we also brought his teacher who became my teacher, Dr. Motoyama to our community, who was a, a beautiful Japanese yogi of, of high renown and, and deep inner enlightenment. And he had so much compassion and love and I saw how that had been instilled in his, in his main student, Paul, that not to control it was really a, a, a gift to the yoga community, that people are going to do what they're going to do. And in the modern era of it being so ubiquitous across the planet, you're right, I walk, you know, whether I'm in Mallorca or Beijing or, or in Sydney, and I'll see, you know, studios that have yin on their schedules. And this just wasn't the case. And I know that many of them either study with Paul's group or with mine. We, we overlap some, but also people tend to gravitate towards one or the other, interestingly. His is more anatomically, anatomically based and mine more psychologically and meditatively. And so we ask our students to have studied with Paul or one of his lead teachers before we would graduate anybody. And then I also don't endorse everyone who graduates. It's a, a long process with us so that people can know that when you come to someone who's an insight yoga teacher, they are well vetted. It's easy to become a yoga teacher of most styles now, but really great teachers who come through my course who usually have been teaching over you know 20 years and have a lot of other styles already it it takes maturity in your own practice to really be safe with people psychologically as well as physically and to be there for the continual opportunity for learning okay. how do students need to be taught rather than just to teach them as if they're there's somebody to fill up, you know, how to empower people. How did they learn best? So I homeschooled my daughter throughout. And so I really studied education in an individual. And so how to offer something collectively, but allow people to adapt it to how they would best utilize it. And yet have them really interested in studying a lot from people who are deeply steeped in the practices before they go out and teach their own teacher trainings. I mean, nowadays, someone will leave a 200-hour teacher training and a week later offer one. I would never be comfortable with that myself, and none of my teachers would ever attempt to do that. And so I suggest to yoga students, you know, look at who you're studying with. What what is their practice? Who did they study with? Look at their websites. If they just say, you know, hey, I love the sea and dolphins and yoga and green juices, and I'm here to offer you 200 hours, they have not shared in their about me about anyone or any lineage that they've actually been a student of. So how can someone who's not dedicated to being a student expect students to trust them? 
And so I do feel like we need to vet our teachers and, and humble ourselves to constant growth and learning as, as teachers ourselves. So if you had a magic wand and you could just wave it and influence yoga teacher trainings around the world, what is the spell that you would cast with that wand? <laughs> the magic realms. And so I would say this fairy dust in the atmosphere that absorbs into their heart mind that is this trusting of the journey of self-discovery rather than the, the sense of having to rush to share it out loud with others. Like come to it for your own interest of, of living in a way that's, that has an internal compass where you can start to feel like genuine confidence in your inner sage. And you don't have to be fully baked to teach, but relax the sense that you've, you've got to make a living at it. Make a living other ways while you explore the beauty of just living the life as a practitioner. And when you become a teacher, you're just a practitioner out loud. And so teach what you've practiced. So I would say that. Like if I've only practiced this much, I'm just going to teach this much while I continue to bake that in and grow more. So don't try to stretch to be somebody that you're not. It's so much more relaxing, so much more fun. And become an acupuncturist. I became a massage therapist, so I would have another way of making a living. So I didn't have to pretend to be an elder when I certainly wasn't. I was in my mid-20s. You know, I didn't know much at all. And so there was, there's other ways that are still within the same fabric of wellness living. So I learned a lot about diet and because I had so much sickness in my childhood. And so I, I could offer that, you know, so what else can we offer as we slowly grow and then, you know, see also what is marginalized in the yoga world that you feel is something that, that needs to stay central. So I would say that, like, you don't have to be a master of it all, but what has really come to you that feels really interesting? And then trust that you can, like, for me, I know enough about anatomy to keep people safe and to teach some about it, but I'd rather send people to, to Paul because he's, he's excellent. It's like, it's in his DNA. And in mine is this curiosity about healing psychological realm. That just comes with ease. Whereas Paul, like, can, he, he laughs and makes fun about that, you know, and he's like, you know, I go to Sarah for that. <laughs> so, so also go with your gifts. What is it that turns you on the most? And if you're going to call it yoga, you know, so what's enough of a crossover with the people coming into the room? They're going to expect some physicality. So get to know enough so that they feel comfortable and then people will be open to going in other directions with you as you grow. So it's this real sense, I would say, of playfulness, of being with your journey, and of, of taking a teacher training to become a deepened practitioner rather than any kind of career goals. Just take that off the ideation and then the expectation of, of some kind of 
having to be creative and new and, cre and create an empire. No, that's already been saturated. It's going to make you feel so stressed that you need a new sequence and a new playlist every week. Oh my God. I didn't want to become a DJ or have to constantly create this new gymnastic setup. It's exhausting. I don't mind first series. I'm still doing it 40 years later. <laughs> you know? So I do a few poses and then I'll just start bringing in what's interesting to me now. And then trusting that whatever's interesting to me, those who end up in the same room with me, we're probably going to have some synergy between us. And who's ever in the other yoga studio and the other side of town or in the other room, I, I very much bless them to find their way with someone else. Not trying to, I don't even like to call people my students as if there's some kind of ownership. They're, they're adults with their own inner compass. They just, our crossover then becomes this third thing. And hopefully it's helpful. You know, that's, it's like good parenting. You want the people to create their own internal touchstone. And then I become more like the satellite parent. Now my daughter's turning 30, you know, and we're extremely close and we're extremely alike in a lot of ways and different in so many. And that's, that's just as it should be. That's such an interesting perspective, the where the place you took that question of what I heard from you was, can we make these teacher trainings less about becoming a teacher as if that's going to happen at the end of this one, whether it's a one month or a three week or a 12 month period, and instead mm -hmm. make it about self-discovery. And it really points to me how much capitalism is what mm. has thrown yoga and the yoga practice into, I don't want to say disarray, but it's confused and muddied the issue a lot because people pay mm -hmm. for a teacher training and in their minds, they're justifying that payment because at the end they can make money back, right? It's like a transactional thing. Mm -hmm. And I love where you're going with this. I think it would be incredibly beneficial if teacher trainers could somehow convince their students to look at it as they're enriching their personal practice instead of, you know, launching a career. Mm -hmm. Having taught a lot of yoga teacher trainings, I also recognize that there's a limit in the amount that your students are going to listen to you. <laughs> some will listen very, very closely and some, it will seem like you're talking into the void and, and they have, you know, some of the stuff you talk about in your book and you sort of alluded to today, we all come with our own story. We all come with this past, this history that feeds into how we walk through the world now. You know, I would say to anyone listening, who's a yoga teacher trainer, don't take on too much of this as your responsibility, because all you can do is share your truth too. And then your students are going to take from that what they will. Beautifully said. Yeah. Thank you so much for that perspective. That was a, it's a beautiful message really for everyone listening, whether you've been through teacher training or not, keep your own studentship as the centerpiece of your relationship to yoga, 
not, mm-hmm. not like the aside, not the extra, but the centerpiece. I think that's really beautiful. You recently wrote and released a book lit from within, and I'd love to hear what inspired you to write it. And what do you hope that readers will walk away with? My first book, Insight Yoga, was, I don't know, 10 10 years ago, and is something that I put piece together after a couple of decades of teaching. And I thought it would be nice to have, it was kind of like taking a teacher training manual and looking behind the scenes of that into a book. And then, of course, I've been teaching and growing and changing in the 10 years since that book. And so it felt like there was more material that I could dive into and elaborate on from within. So both of them have yin yoga explored. The second one, the recent one has, okay, now that we understand more how yoga can affect your meridian system, not just the three main meridians in the center, the three nadis and the 350,000 others, but the 12 regular meridians that an acupuncturist might affect for basic health. I can do a kidney sequence. Regular yoga postures can also be a place for bridging the physical with the yogic. Bridging the physical with the yogic, meaning that which is more subtle, more hidden, more internal. And so I give some in-depth practices. I teach on my level two, whereas my first book is really the outline for my level one training. My second book is the level two. And when I mean level two, it's, it, it's like for people who've been practicing you know, 10, 15 years, a lot of people do level two and it's like the second year of practice, but it's very difficult to concentrate on the formless dimension for very long periods. If you haven't even concentrated in the physical form body for long periods. So it isn't something that you graduate towards just because you did level one. So I think people need, as I was saying, I took Paul's trainings over and over. And every time I cycled back, he may have been teaching the same material, but I was hearing it and understanding it at different levels of capacity. And so the second book is when you want to go deeper. So I go further into the Buddha Dharma, the principles of the Four Noble Truths and of mindfulness and of the nature of karma from this perspective. And then the psychological realm. How do we really investigate ourselves when the critic pops forward and pushes us to perfectionism or to giving up? How can we, in a a way, mine or extract some of the wisdom behind parts of us that are on the surface unkind and, and assume that there is some insight in every aspect of our nature and welcome all parts of our psyche? And how that can become quite normalized, not just something for somebody who spends a lot of money on therapy. So I wanted to lay out in a kind of layman, laywoman's way, how to work on these interdependent realities, physically, energetically, psychologically, meditatively, and then how that relates to our interpersonal relationships. So those are the five areas of my new book and my hope is that they become all the description of this one word yoga which simply means to blend or to integrate to understand in depth 
And they're all aspects of living in a conscious and compassionate and connected way. And so for me, yoga is, has this breadth and this particularity. And if we're leaving out the interpersonal realm or training our own neurotic mind or healing our hearts from the wounds of the past or cultivating the energetic vibrancies to higher frequencies, or if we're leaving out the physical body completely, which some meditators do, if any one of those is left out, it, it's like a bird without two wings. You know, it, it's, it's going to show itself in areas of struggle and suffering more naturally because there, it isn't a holistic perspective. So that's my hope is that yoga becomes this understanding that anyone with a body and a heart and a mind are welcome to join and then to see how internally those all can be aspects that are braided together. They just need time spent independently in each and then with a lens of openness to see how when I'm practicing asana, I'm going to pay attention to the mind and whether or not I'm striving or I'm criticizing myself. And that's a kind of mind training. And in my meditation, I'm going to pay attention to what are the sensations in my body? And if I'm just constantly trying to get back to comfort, well, then I haven't trained in how in discomfort I can also be really present and awake and aware. And so in that way, each then affects the other style of practice intimately. But they're distinct trainings. And so I need to understand their unique methods. And that's going to take a while. And that's okay. I have my whole life. This is a practice for life. These are methods that are about being a lifelong learner. So it's not a book to read and put down and go on to the next. I hope they are both books feel like they are meant to be something that are archived for practitioners way into the future. They're not just for, you know, the modern special identity of what yoga means to, to someone new to it now. They straddle the past and I hope they go way into being foundations for all the creative endeavors that will continue, hopefully, as long as we have a body and, and a connection with each other, we're going to need ways in that reorient us and remind us that there's a lot more to still discover than we think we had yesterday. If anyone listening wants to find the book or learn more about your work, where should they go? Sarah Powers Insight Yoga.com or just my name, Sarah Powers Yoga. We'll find you there. I do lots of trainings and retreats as you do and a lot of teachers listening and uh, these books hopefully can become a, a look into whether or not you feel like we would be a good fit and then certainly online there is that now there always was even before the pandemic era but I'm definitely a proponent of the chief force of being together in person and how that transmission helps us learn much quicker so we lead retreats that are what we call practice retreats rather than yoga vacations. And so they're led in social silence and you practice all day. And we, of course, aren't silent as teachers. My husband and I, we lead yin, 
practice, yang practice, and meditation practice, and we cycle those all day long, day after day. We do one in the States and two or three in Europe every year. So we're available. I would love to meet anyone who has this interest similar with mine. Be a, a blessing to connect. Is there any final words, anything that you feel we haven't touched on today that you want to make sure to share or anything, any message that you really want to repeat before we wrap up? Yeah. In times when you're feeling really dried up and uninspired, don't give up on yourself. In times when you feel like you're not good enough or you, 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 you don't have anything to offer, know that you, you do. And it can be uncovered and it's okay to go through those cycles. They're natural. And in it, something subterranean is happening and and find support with someone that you feel doesn't need anything from you or have any expectations. So we we need that kind of therapeutic touchstone with others that lets us stay put in those timings, in those places of, of pain and grief and normalizing that so that we trust that the full palette of our humanity all is worth living through and it won't always be like this. But if it is now, don't rush it. You don't need to judge yourself. This too will change. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. It's been a treat. I hope we see each other again in in live settings. Yes, that would be wonderful. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing, especially your story of the early years. I think that's so helpful and all of your wisdom, which I know is available in much more depth in the book. Thank you for having this podcast, having me on it, for being, I'm sure, an inspiration to so many students and to what it sounds like two daughters at far ends of the spectrum, but aren't they lucky (laughs) to have you and to have each other. One thing I love about creating this podcast and getting to talk to so many different yoga teachers is how I get to hear similar messages from different people that land very differently for me. Listening to Sarah, talking to Sarah makes me feel excited for my own practice and also really grateful to have the privilege to carve out space and time for the kind of inquiry that my practice offers me. When I think about the kind of pressures that yoga teachers experience specifically in today's world, I want to ask you, how often is your yoga practice just for you? Making your practice for you and about you is not a selfish thing. In a sense, I I believe it's the opposite of selfish. When we're always using our practice to prepare for our classes, chances are that is actually going to keep us in shallower waters. And that might even be one of the reason that many yoga teachers tend to do this. It can prevent us from having to face some of the discomfort that can come up in a deeper, deeper practice. Carving out practice time that's just for you can, at its best, create conditions for more healing and more growth. And a more healed person is actually better able to hold space for others and and whatever their journey is, whatever they need space held for them. 
sort of like Sarah was talking about in the episode where she said, you know, when you're struggling, when you're doubting, find somebody who doesn't need anything from you, who can just be there for you, be a reflection, be a sounding board. And that's part of what we do as yoga teachers. There might not be a lot of dialogue unless you're teaching private sessions, but there is a way that our presence and our classes can be part of that space for other people who are struggling. Right now, I am marveling at this paradox of how humans are both so delicate and also so resilient. What I mean by this is everybody I've ever gotten to know deeply enough to know is wounded in some way. This also means everyone has potential for growth and healing that will help us step into living more fully. There's a part of me at times that feels exhausted and even hopeless about the amount of healing that's needed on this planet for humans to stop hurting each other all the time and hurting the planet, frankly. Other times I'm able to tap into this sense of hope about our resilience instead, that we can heal, we can grow. That's pretty amazing. And while we will never get to a place where we are all fully healed and never harm each other, in a sense, that's the point. That's the work that creates meaning in our lives. As a yoga teacher, I imagine you have found some amount of healing in your practice, some amount of growth. And my invitation to you is do not let that end because you're now sharing what you gained with others. Keep at least a portion of your practice just for you. Thank you for listening, and thank you for caring enough to teach yoga. <laughs>